This podcast is for general information only. It is not intended as a substitute for general health care services. If you have medical conditions, you need to see your doctor. Use of this information is at the user's own risk. Welcome to FitRx with Dr. Greg Dennis. Join me as we challenge the standard sick model of healthcare. This is your source for everything health, wellness, prevention, fitness, biohacking, and more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of FitRx. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Dennis. And before we get going, I want to remind you, as I always do, to uh, put down some reviews on Apple Podcasts or other podcast media. Um, and I appreciate those who do that. Um, so today we have a very important topic. We are going to be talking all about the heart. Uh, my guest is Dr. Stephen Hussey. He is a doctorate of chiropractic and master's in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western State in Portland, Oregon. He's a health coach, speaker, author of two books on health, The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health, and his most recent book, which is what we're going to talk about today, Understanding the Heart, Uncommon Insights to Our Most Commonly Diseased Organ. Uh, so Dr. Steven, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. All right. So I want to start just by asking, so this was a very in-depth book about the heart. And so you obviously did a lot of research. And so just, I want to ask, what was your motivation in, in just doing all this research about the heart? Uh, chiropractors, you know, aren't, aren't going to do this, the, re, the, the research necessary, you know, for this in-depth of a book. So just kind of take us back to what made you want to write a book like this. Um, yeah, I mean, like many people, I guess, like me, it, it started, I guess, with my own health journey. Uh, so from a very young age, I had a lot of inflammatory conditions. Um, I had uh, asthma, I had really bad allergies, IBS, uh, I used to break out in chronic hives all over my body. Uh, and so I had all this inflammation and ultimately ended up uh, diagnosed with autoimmune type 1 diabetes. And as a result of that inflammation that was going on in my body. And so, you know, that kind of threw me into uh, the Western medical system. And I was very uh, dependent on them for learning how to manage these conditions. And uh, ultimately, though, throughout, as, you know, as I grew up through high school and then definitely in college, I started to realize that, uh, the way I lived my life was had a direct impact on my ability to manage the conditions that I had. And ultimately the way I lived my life has resulted in many of those chronic conditions being not there anymore. Um, except for the type one diabetes, which is kind of collateral damage from, you know, uh, that inflammation I had. And so being a type one diabetic, it predisposes me pretty heavily to uh, cardiovascular disease. And so for as long as I can remember now, I've just kind of been interested in that topic and how I can permit it in myself and, and what causes it and what the role of the heart is in the body and, and all these different things. And I came across a lot of interesting inf in, uh, in information and uh, kind of accumulated it and, and kind of stored it up and then eventually started sharing it on social media um, and then decided to compile it into a book and people liked it. So I kept going and, and, and here we are. 
So there's a lot out there, especially in the the medical literature and and in you know more I guess traditional medicine about the heart. And I don't buy into a lot of it, as uh, we'll get into, as I'm sure you don't either. But did you know? Did you just question kind of you know the standard information that was out there about cardiovascular? Uh, you know, health and is that what, you know, what, what made you, you know, kind of, I guess, look elsewhere and dive deeper into it? Yeah, it was, it was mainly the fact that when I started figuring out that, I guess what started it was when I started figuring out the way that my life had an impact on my ability to manage these conditions. And I had never been told that um, by any traditional medical doctor, my endocrinologists, any cardiologist, my family doctors, any, anybody, no one had ever told me to stop eating certain things or change my diet or, or any health behavior. It was all about, you know, what medications to give, how much insulin to give that kind of stuff. So when I learned that, that I could have this impact on, on my health this way, uh, it was kind of like, uh, I kind of felt betrayed by them, like that I, I hadn't been given all the information, but then I found out that they didn't necessarily have that information. They never really been told that this kind of how they, they, you know, they learned one way of doing medicine. And so, so from that, I had this, I'd say healthy skepticism. Uh, and so when I started looking into heart disease um, and I, I, I had this, I did so with this healthy skepticism, you know, and I started to think, well, if, if what they were unable to tell me then um, w- was a problem or was an issue that I had and it, it kind of, uh, betrayed my trust a little bit. What else are they telling me that may not, may or may not be true, you know? And so that's kind of, kind of how I looked at everything. Um, you know, from the time I started being interested in health, which was in college, um, I just, I, I questioned everything. I wanted to prove it to myself. Um, and, and so that's what, that's where this came from, I guess. It, and not just, you know, in health, but in all aspects of our lives, I, I tend to question what the, the mainstream is. doesn't mean that I don't find out that what the mainstream is, is right sometimes. Um, but lots of times it's, there's often not the whole story there. Well, very good. Uh, so let's get into the book a little bit. So understanding the heart, uncommon insights to our most commonly diseased organ. So you start by. Uh, kind of the first part is heart disease, billions of years in the making. Uh, so um, I guess summarize that part of the book and, and from an evolutionary standpoint, I mean, what, what brought us to here and, and what made you add kind of that historical part uh, about the heart? Yeah, I've, I've always found value in, you know, truly understanding the origins of things uh, and how they came to be, not just our current you know, conventional wisdom about heart disease and how that came to be, but also how the body kind of came to be, because I think it, it allows us to find or gain insight into how things can go wrong um, and understand that. So, uh, yeah, I start off with uh, all the way back to the, um, you know, the theory of the primordial soup and the, and the original origins of life uh, and how we started going from very, uh, not we, but, you know, how life started going from, you know, very simple unicellular organisms to more and more complex multicellular organisms. Um, and the reason that's important is because it, it, um, it enabled a relationship between cells and what are now called mitochondria to form. Mitochondria are very important for disease of all sorts, but especially heart disease because the heart is one of the most mitochondrial dense tissues in the body. Um, so, 
so I go from there. Um, and then I start talking about, you know, the evolution of the stress response and how certain changes in our stress response had to evolve in certain ways for, for life to go from reptiles to mammals. Um, because reptiles have this very slow metabolism. They can have a stress response and literally shut down organs in their body when necessary. Um, and mammals can't do that. So something had to happen to our stress response and the, and how it operates, um, or I should say mammal stress response and how it operates in order for mammals to be able to evolve to what they are. And, you know, we, we are mammals. So we, we hold that stress response. Um, I then talk about how uh, for, you know, since the, the time of uh, humans have been around modern humans, um, you know, which is about two to 300,000 years um, for, for lots of that time, um, or especially the more recent, like when the Neanderthals and, and, um, and first modern humans were around that, uh, the diet that literally made us who we are and propelled us to what we are today, um, largely consisted of animal foods, um, which today a mainstream narrative is that animal foods cause heart disease. And so I call into question and illustrate that, you know, how could a food that literally made us who we are, certain aspects of who we are, um, also be causing this disease? You know, we've been eating this type of food um, in some capacity since the beginning of humans, yet heart disease in the capacity that we know it today, in the amount, the, the, uh, 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 the numbers we know it today, uh, is a very new disease. It's a disease of civilization. So it doesn't make sense that there's this animal foods are driving heart disease. And so then I start to talk about um, what changes did happen from when, you know, the first humans uh, started, uh, became, you know, human to evolved to be humans to when we started doing things like forming civilizations and farming and just a very big change that hasn't been done by humans for very long in an evolutionarily speaking amount of time. And then I go from how we went from that to very, very modern day to how, you know, this idea that cholesterol saturated fat, high LDL levels is driving heart disease and where that theory came from. Um, and, and, uh, and, and potentially the, the questionable science that's founded on, um, which happened, you know, 70 years ago, uh, give or take, um, and how that's led us up to modern day. So I tried to to kind of give this history, you know, obviously not a complete history, but these certain points in history that were pivotal times for our physiology, for our understanding of heart disease that led us to where we are at in modern day, which is with heart disease as the number one killer in the world, um, whether that be heart failure, heart attacks, atherosclerosis, uh, whatever it may be, um, it's the number one killer. And clearly, the conventional approach to it is not working um, and doesn't mean that certain aspects of it are not right, but we need to kind of rethink our, our approach to it. For sure. Uh, so I want to ask briefly, we don't have to go in depth on this, but I know you talk a little bit about um, the naked mole rat. I've, I've heard that discussed before in, you know, longevity circles and stuff. And, and so I know that, that they've studied the naked mole rat, but what can we learn about the naked mole rat that that can apply to us today as far as, you know, as we're talking about the heart. Yeah. Well, so to understand this, we have to kind of understand what happened when there was reptiles and what happened in the evolution of reptiles that led to the evolution of mammals. And so reptiles are these very, um, 
metabolically slow animals. We think of reptiles, they're, they're pretty slow moving, most of them. Um, they're cold blooded, uh, whereas mammals are generally more fast moving, very metabolically active. They're warm blooded because they're, they're um, you know, burning energy all the time, creating this body heat. And so what had to happen there is that in, in reptiles, when they have a stress response, they can literally shut down aspects of their physiology, slow their metabolism significantly um, when they have that stress response. And this is, um, you know, quote unquote, playing dead and it's a defense mechanism uh, for them. And, you know, must've been evolutionarily advantageous because it stuck around. Um, but for mammals to have a stress response like that, like they couldn't do that because the tissues are so metabolically active. If you shut down aspects of physiology and slow metabolism, the animal is going to die. Um, and so in order to get to that point, um, we had to get this split in the vagus nerve because in, in reptiles, the vagus nerve was, was one, um, one pathway, the bilsomotor nucleus. And in order to get to uh, having a stress response without having to shut down organs, there's a split in the vagus nerve. So in mammals, we see dorsomotor nucleus and a nucleus ambiguous, which allows a balanced signaling um, without a shutdown response. So, so quote unquote, mammals don't have that response. Um, and so there's one example of a mammal who actually um, can significantly slow the metabolism uh, and seems to be able to survive in very low oxygen environments, um, not necessarily due to a stress response, but that is the naked mole rat. Uh, so the naked mole rat lives in these subterranean dwellings where it's very low oxygen. And so they can actually slow the metabolism pretty significantly um, to the point where they like they can pass out. So they've done experience that really experiments that are interesting where they put mole rats and mice in low oxygen environments and eventually both of them pass out. Um, and then, um, but when they bring the oxygen back to the environment after a time, the mole rats wake back up, the mice are dead. Um, they can't withstand that environment. So this is important for us and, and for the heart um, because, because of the way that um, that nervous system response uh, developed, you know? So uh, the mole rats still have that mammalian nervous system response, but they just have the ability to slow their metabolism. Um, whereas we don't really have that uh, as humans and most mammals don't have that. This is unique to the mole rat. And so if we get into a situation where our stress response is overwhelmed, so to speak, um, we would not be able to um, survive a so, sort of slower metabolic response. And there are situations in the modern day where this happens for humans, um, where we can get into a situation where it, uh, it uh, slows or it kind of uh, pathologically slows the metabolism in a way that can create issues for the heart because our heart is so connected to that, um, that metabolic and that emotional state. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and so this is maybe getting off track a little bit here, but, um, you know, I've talked before on here about doing things like cold thermogenesis to, you know, improve your, you know, sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system in times of, of stress. If, if we do things like that, um, to where we're basically maybe improving our parasympathetic nervous system, not getting that stress response. I mean, uh, can we, can we improve, I guess, that aspect because it sounds like with, with the neck and mole rat, I mean, you know, they're able to subconsciously, I guess, control their, their stress. I mean, can, can we 
improve, I guess, our stress response by doing these types of things? Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, the naked war rat just has the ability to slow its metabolism, which we don't have. And that could happen during the stress response for it, or it could happen just because it's in a low oxygen environment. Um, but uh, for us, yes, you know, we can find a situation where that increased stress response puts us in, gets us in trouble. And there are definitely ways that we can um, create balance in that stress response, I would say, because people think about it as sympathetic, parasympathetic, and we're in one or the other. Mm-hmm. But in reality, we're getting both signals at the same time, and they're supposed to balance each other out, keep each other in check, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what happens, what ends up happening is that we can we can get into a state where we're in a stress response too often, too much. We kind of train ourselves to do that. And the parasympathetic aspect of our signaling of the autonomic nervous system is kind of, um, it's kind of uh, delayed or, or lessened. Um, they call it like the vagal break or decreased vagal tone. Uh, and so then we get this more, more sympathetic dominant signals to tissues in the body, including the organs. Um, and so, so yeah, there are definitely ways that we can improve the balance in the autonomic nervous system and those signals, but it's important to point out that when, when humans are born, um, they're not fully developed in many ways. Um, but one of those ways is the autonomic nervous system. It does, it has no idea what is normal and safe. And so that's why we, we look at babies with, with soft faces and make comforting noises and, and we put them in, in comforting places because we're trying to teach the baby what is safe, give it its baseline of what is safe. Um, and that's why childhood trauma can be pretty significant um, for the later development of a healthy autonomic nervous system um, stress response. Um, but then regardless of where we're at on that baseline, we can always do things to improve our balance in the autonomic nervous system. So that's things like, um, I mean, there's all kinds of things, but it's, um, you know, spending time in nature, meditation, uh, yoga, uh, strong social relationships, loving social relationships, um, you know, sunlight, uh, all kinds of things um, that that people can do. And the list goes on and on and on. Um, But I think most importantly, uh, the one that, that, is most uh, impactful, I should say, is um, is finding out which stressors in your life are are the most stressful to you. And research suggests that that is the stressors that make you feel like you're out of control or that they're putting you in an unpredictable situation. Those are the stressors that um, have the, the greatest impact on our health and on imbalance in our autonomic nervous system. So finding those things and working to mitigate those if you can uh, is the best. So there's really interesting studies where they look at, you know, employees of a big corporation and, you know, the employees that are higher up in the company have more control of things, um, more secure in their, in their career, that kind of stuff. They have lots of stress, very high demand jobs, but they have less uh, negative effects of that stress. And the people who lower down the company who may, you know, their job, uh, less job security, uh, unpredictable pay, unpredictable work environment, things like that, they're out of the control, um, tend to have more negative impacts on stress. So that those, that's the big thing to, to look at is, is removing or mitigating those unpredictable stressors in your life. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's jump in to the, the heart. Um, and you have a, a part about just the heart and its malfunctions. 
and then you talk about the true function of the heart. So we all obviously think of the heart as just an, an, an organ that, you know, pumps blood to the body. That's its main job. Uh, but, uh, what, what say you? Yeah. Um, this was one of the most interesting things I came across, uh, when looking at, at the heart and, and how it works and what keeps it healthy and stuff. Um, yeah, so th- it turns out that there's a large body of research that suggests that the heart is not the main mover of the blood. Uh, it's not what the function of the heart and the body is. And um, to understand this, we have to understand something called um, what's being called fourth phase water or structured water or exclusion zone water, um, because this is a phenomenon that happens um, that's pretty unique to water, where water has the ability to hold energy. Um, and when it's sufficient, when it has sufficient energy that it's holding and it's next to a water loving surface, a hydrophilic surface, it actually structures itself into something that's between a solid and a liquid. We've been told there's solid liquid gas as far as forms of water. There's actually this, this fourth form that's kind of like a gel. You can think like jello. Um, and so when this happens, um, and it's been proven that this happens, uh, in the body, um, as far as in the lining of our arteries, um, but when it happens in the lining of the arteries, um, because the blood is more or less half water, um, this actually, the way that it forms the structured water actually creates blood flow. Uh, it creates an energy gradient between the structured water and the bulk water in the middle of the artery that actually propels blood flow. Um, and so they've done really interesting experiments um, where they've, they've shown that this happens when they you know, euthanize an animal. Uh, and the blood continues to flow despite the, the heart stops beating. Um, and they, they've done it and it continues to flow for up to two hours. And if they apply, you know, radiant energy, they, things that energize water to it, then it continues to flow. What that means is, is that, you know, if the blood's already moving on its own, more or less, um, then, then what's the heart there for, you know, uh, what's it doing there? And the, the question or the answer is, is twofold. I think one is that, when you look at the heart and because it's got this, this flow of blood that's already coming into it, the flow is already happening. It, it functions more like a hydraulic ram. And uh, that's something that's flow activated. There's no like, you know, out, out, um, uh, external power source or anything like that. Um, it's just activated by the flow of a fluid water into the system. And when that happens, it creates a, a situation where it can turn water around and pump it out a different direction um, uh, so to speak. And so that's more or less what the heart, um, functions like. And I didn't know what a hydraulic ram was when I first came across it. I had to go YouTube it and, and watch videos of how, how, how a hydraulic ram works. Um, but yeah. And so that's how the heart works. And this is kind of hard to grasp without the pictures from the book, um, which, which people, uh, can, can get and look at. Um, but yeah, so the water's moving or the blood's moving on its own. The, the heart is there, um, and the blood flows through the heart. So there's a reason that the muscles of the heart are oriented in a spiral nature. Um, it's because when the heart contracts, it actually contracts in a way that um, vortexes or spirals the blood as it moves through. And one of the ways that we can energize water is to vortex it or spiral it in the presence of oxygen. Um, and so the blood always has oxygen, even the venous blood has, has oxygen, just less so than the arterial blood. Um, and so when that happens, we energize the water and the blood. So then when it gets back to the arteries, it can form this fourth phase water and keep blood flow moving. So 
in a way, the heart is responsible for the movement of blood throughout the body, just not in the way that we thought. So there's that. And then the other, so that's one aspect of why the heart is there. It's there to, to vortex or, or spiral the blood as it moves through it. And the heart does do a small amount of pumping, but no more than just enough to, to move it through the chambers of the heart. Um, and then the other aspect of why the heart is there is that, you know, with, with the blood flowing on its own, uh, the heart is there in the middle of the arteries and the veins, and it's there to uh, kind of maintain pressure between the two systems. Because if we were to go for a run or do some sort of physical exercise, the tissues would demand more blood. The blood flow, which, which that, that demand for more blood actually is what increases the blood flow. And the heart starts beating faster because it's trying to keep up with the increased blood flow. Um, and if, if the heart wasn't there, then all the blood would flow to the arterial side, trying to get to the tissues because the tissues are demanding this. And so if the heart wasn't there, uh, the venous side would collapse because all the pressure would go to the other side. And then we would have a, a kind of a failure of the system uh, and, and it wouldn't work. So with the heart there, it's actually there slowing the blood, slowing the flow of blood in that situation. And there's really interesting studies that illustrate this, uh, that when we, when we um, increase uh, tissue demand of blood, that the heart is actually slowing it. It's actually like a damming up organ. There's, there's um, evidence of this in endurance athletes because they get enlarged hearts and people thought, oh, it's because they're pumping more blood forcefully. The muscle gets bigger. No, it's actually because the muscle gets bigger because it's actually more efficient at stopping the blood because it's coming in so forcefully all the time. Um, so again, we're trying to, the heart is there to help maintain the pressure between the two systems. So one side doesn't collapse. So those are the two true functions of the heart, uh, in my opinion. So how would you explain the pathology then of, of heart failure? Because when we think of heart failure, um, you know, like from a medical standpoint, we get an echocardiogram, somebody has a low ejection fraction, meaning their heart isn't, isn't pumping well. So we call it heart failure. And then they have fluid that that backs up from the heart, either into the lungs or, or into the body. So how does that go along with what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, heart failure is, is an assumption that the heart is, is not doing its job of pumping. And so therefore fluid gets built up in, in certain areas and the ejection fraction of, of the heart is, is decreased. Um, and in reality that, that ejection fraction is decreased um, because the water or the, the water in the blood is not flowing through properly. Um, and so therefore, if we have, if we're forcing the heart to do more pumping than it's supposed to, then there's increased pressure in that tissue and it starts to expand. So our heart stops to be, um, starts to be less formed like a football, you know, American football, it starts to look more like a basketball because the pressure is causing it to expand. Um, which is one of the characteristics of, of heart failure is, is uh, um, that cardiomyopathy. And so this is all a failure of those mechanisms um, to, uh, to, of the self-propel blood flow. Um, if it's not working like it's supposed to, we start to get pooling up in blood or fluid in areas of the body um, because that mechanism is not working. And that, again, creates sluggish blood that's not flowing through the heart properly and the heart's being forced to be more of a pump than it's designed to be um, rather than just kind of guiding and, and the blood through the ventricles and the, and the atria. Um, and then it starts to change shape and lose function and we get, we get heart failure, but that's not the only 
reason we can get heart failure. I mean, you could have damage to the heart from various things that could cause heart failure. Um, and again, uh, those, are, that's, that's more of a, that's more of an issue with the heart directly when we get damage to the tissue, because then, yeah, that ejection fraction isn't as, as, as much as it should be because, you know, the heart does do a little bit of pumping, but again, it's no more than just, you know, getting that fluid out of the ventricle uh, or at least the 50 to 60% that is normal uh, getting out of the ventricle. And so if we have damage to that tissue, yeah, that can predispose us to pressure in there and then, and then heart failure. And the thing that solidifies all this for me is, is the research with infrared sauna because infrared light is one of the best ways that we energize water um, and that we can encourage the, you know, the water to form fourth phase water in the arteries and keep the blood flowing. And if you look at the research on infrared sauna and heart failure, infrared sauna and, and high blood pressure and things like um, uh, nitric oxide expression, which from the endothelia of the arteries, it's phenomenal. It, there's just um, massive improvements in people with heart failure, hypertension, poor blood flow when we put them in an infrared sauna. Um, and so I don't understand why it's not more utilized in, in cardiology these days, um, but, uh, but it's pretty, pretty fascinating. Yeah. Well, and I'm not as familiar with that one with the infrared sauna, uh, you know, specific to heart failure, but you know, the, the Finland study that they did, that was 20 years. I'm sure you're familiar with that, uh, that used traditional saunas, um, you know, showed significant decrease in, uh, in heart disease and all cause mortality. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, that was over a 20 year period. And so, yeah, I've asked the question, you know, why, uh, why we don't use more traditional saunas, you know, especially in, in cardiology, just, just for that study alone, but definitely anyways. Um, yeah, well, so let's move on. So you talk about, um, cholesterol and atherosclerosis. Um, and so we all know that the best way to prevent heart disease is by just getting our cholesterol as low as possible. Uh, and everybody should be on a statin. We should just have it in the water. Correct. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would, I would disagree. Yeah. My, so my, my listener knows, hopefully my listeners know that, that, uh, I'm uh, being, uh, sarcastic, but, uh, but yeah, so, so talk about that and the role that, that cholesterol and, and atherosclerosis has. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, there's lots of different, uh, theories and information, uh, about uh, this topic, obviously. Um, but you know, it's a good segue because, you know, another aspect or another characteristic, I should say of that fourth phase water that forms in the lining of the arteries is that it's, it's also called exclusion zone water. It's one of its nicknames um, because it excludes things that are not it. And so, you know, that includes cholesterol molecules um, because the way that the water forms, uh, it makes it really hard for things to penetrate it. So even, even some of the smallest things in the blood can't get through it. And so there's no way cholesterol can get through it if we have intact fourth phase water. And so the question is, what potentially could damage fourth phase water. And, and the answer to that is uh, oxidative stress or inflammation, which can be caused by a lot of different things in our environment. It could be caused by chronic stress, uh, processed food diet, um, uh, exposure to toxins in our environment, like heavy metals, BPA, that kind of stuff. All that stuff can cause damage to any, any, um, any structure in the body that has an electron to donate, including the fourth phase water. If that gets damaged, then it ends up damaging the lining of the artery. Um, and then the body reacts to that by repairing the lining of the arteries. If it doesn't repair it, it's going to rupture. And that's a bigger problem than atherosclerosis. So it repairs it by using like cholesterol and, and minerals and things kind of like spackle 
to go in there and just patch it up. Um, and so the moral of that story is, is that it's not the LDL or cholesterol that's causing the, the problem. It's the inflammation that then causes the body to react in a way that uses cholesterol to do that or LDL. And so then, you know, we have to talk about, A, we, we, just, we just kind of explained why LDL can't even touch the lining of the artery unless there's inflammation. And so then we look at the research and we do see that there are studies that show an association, which there are lots of problems with associational studies, but there are studies that show an association between higher LDL and atherosclerosis, but there's no way you can prove that one causes the other through those studies. Um, but one thing we do see pretty heavily throughout the research is that things like oxidized LDL or LP little a or small particle um, count, uh, or not small particle count, but small um, particle size um, of LDL, um, those things uh, do seem to be uh, more heavily associated and maybe even you know, suggesting of causative in atherosclerosis. But we have to ask ourselves, what causes LDL to be oxidized? What causes it to be in the form of LP little a um, or a smaller particle size? And the answer to that is oxidative stress and inflammation. So it's the same thing that damages the artery is also damaging the cholesterol. And we see that reflected in the research. Um, so it's, it always has to have this precursor event or state of the body where it's inflammation and oxidative stress for LDL to play its role. Um, so that's, that's one aspect of things. So the, the real way that we prevent atherosclerosis is we lower the inflammation, lower the oxidative stress, um, and then, and create, you know, metabolic health, which will also, you know, lower that inflammation and oxidative stress. Um, so, so yeah. And then, and then we look at, you know, we look at how critical LDL and cholesterol is to the body. It really makes no sense that it would be causing this disease. Um, even in, even with high levels, it really takes this precursor state of, of inflammation, oxidative stress to trigger that whole event. And cholesterol has kind of been framed and blamed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been a big win for big pharma. It's a <laughs> yeah. multi-billion dollar industry as I'm sure, you know, so. Yeah. And actually the, the guidelines for cholesterol used to be uh, for LDL specifically, not total used to be 250. Um, and then, you know, they, they came in and they lowered it to 200, then they lowered it to 150, mm -hmm. then they lowered it to 100. Yep. And all those reframing of the guidelines was funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, they've, they've made a killing off that. So, yeah. well, um, so talk about uh, heart attack. So you, you talk about the three imbalances of, of a heart attack. And, and so talk about maybe what, what actually causes a heart attack. Yeah. So heart attack is just kind of this blanket term that we use for, you know, when the heart uh, stops functioning properly or has tissue death in an area. And so, you know, one form of what people think of as heart attacks, it's like cardiac arrest. Some people consider that different, but cardiac arrest is basically when the signaling to the heart to have that steady um, beat uh, basically gets really messed up and the heart kind of seizes up. Um, there's a very, you know, famous example of this recently at the European championships in, in, uh, in Europe, uh, a player from Denmark actually on the field, you know, had sudden cardiac arrest. Um, and so that's one form of heart attack where the heart seizes and that can cause all kinds of issues. But then there's also the tissue death, like necrosis of some of the heart tissue. Um, and there's a few different ways that this can happen. One is that is what most people think of. They think about like a, a blockage forming in an artery. 
um, whether that's from uh, a breaking off of some atherosclerosis or whether that's from um, you know, just a, a clot kind of spontaneously forming because conditions are perfect for that and it, it forms in that, uh, in that artery and it blocks the flow of blood and we get um, uh, decreased blood flow to the area and that results in tissue death. Um, but there's actually lots of evidence um, that heart attacks can happen without a blockage whatsoever. Um, and that has to do more with uh, the imbalance signal of the autonomic nervous system, which we were talking about before. Um, when that signal becomes imbalanced and we get more um, stress response signaling to the heart, just like when you're, you go for a run, that's a stress response signal to your legs and they start burning more glycogen, which relates in or results in more um, lactic acid and hydro hydrogen ions build up in there and it creates a muscle burn. Same kind of thing happens if we get a, a stress signal or a dominant stress signal to the heart. It starts it starts burning more glucose than it would like to, uh, which results in lactic acid buildup and um, pressure changes and interference with calcium absorption and all kinds of things. And that, that ends up with, you know, restricting blood flow and we get tissue death, no blockage required whatsoever. Um, and so those are the kind of the, the three situations that people call heart attacks. Um, <clears throat> but the interesting thing is that they're all concerned about this blockage theory which is a concern. We don't want that to happen. Um, but when we look at the research on what they've done to either go around the blockage or, or stent the blockage. So the research on like elective stents where they go in and they, it's not an acute situation and they go in and they place a stent or when they use bypass surgery, the research on those is, is not really good for preventing future outcomes. Um, it's basically the same for whether they have the procedures or not. Um, and the reason that is, is because, or one reason I think that is, is because there's some really interesting research by an Italian researcher named Giorgio Baraldi. And he, he found that anywhere there was a 70% or more blockage of an artery, that the body had built a full system of collaterals around it, um, like, like angiogenesis, making new arteries around it that fully compensated the tissue with blood. And so, you know, and there's research that shows that that can happen within four days. Um, and so it makes sense that if you, if you've already got a bypass, so to speak, and you put in another one, it's not going to hurt anything, but it's not really going to help either. Um, or if you put in a stent that, uh, it's not really going to hurt, but it's not going to help. So that's why the research on those is the long-term research on those isn't, isn't that great, um, on those procedures. Okay. I want to ask you about high blood pressure. Cause you mentioned that in there as well, you know, high blood pressure is one of those things like cholesterol, you know, everybody wants to know what their cholesterol is and, you know, they, they worry a lot about high blood pressure. So what is the importance of your blood pressure in relation to the heart or heart disease? So, I mean, blood pressure, I, I kind of define um, health in general as the ability of your body to adapt to, to certain situations. So if you lose the ability to adapt out of your, um, out of your stress response, then that can create poor health. If you lose the ability to adapt um, to different uh, food substrates like glucose versus fatty acids, ketones, that kind of stuff, then that can be bad for your health. And so when, when someone's blood pressure goes up, that's the body adapting to its environment. Uh, and that environment could be one of insulin resistance. It could be one of uh, an imbalanced stress response. Um, and, and, and those two things are pretty much driving, you know, high blood pressure is insulin resistance and an imbalanced stress response. But again, it's just the body doing what, what exactly what it's supposed to do in the environment that it's in. 
Um, so I'm of the opinion that high blood pressure um, is, is not as inherently dangerous as people think um, because the real issue is the insulin resistance and the imbalanced stress response. Um, but, you know, if we, your body again is doing what it's supposed to. And so if we artificially um, decrease it with like, you know, say blood pressure medications and things like that, A, we're not correcting the real issues. Um, but B, we are, we're also um, ignoring the, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're forcing the body to do something it's not adapted to do, right? right. Um, and so it's not the, the high blood pressure is associated with all these different things like increased stroke, increased heart attack, all that kind of stuff but it's not the high blood pressure. That's just your body reacting. The things that cause stroke and heart attacks and things like that are the insulin resistance, inflammation, um, uh, imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. So again, high blood pressure has kind of been blamed for these things, kind of like LDL cholesterol has, mm-hmm. when in reality, um, it's the things that cause the high blood pressure um, that, uh, that we should be focusing on. Um, and so the main thing with blood pressure is people talk about, you know, you got to lower your sodium intake and all that stuff. Salt causes high blood pressure. And there's really not much evidence for that uh, whatsoever. Um, it was thought that that was the case because um, when, when high blood pressure happens that uh, you know, uh, when high blood pressure happens, then the body kind of flushes out fluid and we see lots of salt with that um, because minerals have to be released in order to do that. Um, but in reality, uh, it's not the salt causing the high blood pressure. And there's actually there's actually evidence that shows that low salt intake creates insulin resistance, mm-hmm. which is one of the proven you know reasons that we get high blood pressure. Um, so it's it's backwards again and and high blood pressure has been blamed for a lot of things when in reality it's just the body reacting to the the uh, the environment that it's in. right. Yeah, I agree. Uh, what would you say to all these people that that just say, well, you know, high blood pressure just runs in my family. I mean, it's just genetic. Yeah. And, and I would say that, you know, the only genetic component to most things, I mean, there are some purely genetic diseases, but high blood pressure is not one of them. Um, uh, the only truly genetic component of, of most things is that families tend to do the same behaviors. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And that, you know, we can all have these sets of genes that predispose us to certain things, but there's always an environment that pulls the trigger and families tend to live in the same environment, eat the same things, have the same stresses, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so they tend to have the same predisposing genes and predisposing or, and triggers. Um, but those things wouldn't happen if we didn't have the predisposing genes. So thank you for listening to fit RX. I invite you to share this with friends and family. If you would like, you can check out our website at vibrantlifedc.com, or you can email me at Dr. Greg at vibrantlifedc.com. Dot com.